Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. All right, and we are back here. We're here with Ghoulies DeCaldi. Uh, welcome to the show. <laughs> so nice to have you. So you're going to be here talking today about autonomous trucks, human guided autonomy. Super excited to talk to you about this uh, topic. Um, can you just tell us uh, a little bit about who you are and your background? Yeah, sure. So um, my background is actually coming from aerospace engineering. I did complete my undergrad in uh, Istanbul Technical University in Turkey. So I was focusing on astronautical engineering and towards the, I think, last two years of my time in there, I found human factors field. And then I did my thesis on human factors in the commercial air, um, aircraft cockpits, and I fell in love with that. <laughs> so I wanted to know more about the human factors. So as a next step, I moved to United States and started working with uh, Dr. Karen Fye at Georgia Tech uh, to do my master's uh, degree. Uh, so I worked on interactive machine learning projects. And as a part of my thesis, I worked on flight replanning tools for general aviation pilots. And I learned a lot about human factors and cognitive systems engineering, um, thanks to Dr. Fai. And then the next, uh, I moved to um, Iowa State University to work with Dr. Michael Dorn uh, for my PhD. And this time I wanted to shift my focus rather than just focusing human factors and cognitive systems engineering in aerospace. I want to do more, not just mm -hmm. aerospace. And that's why I moved to actually industrial engineering with the focus of uh, human factors. But I end up with, again, aerospace <laughs> projects. <laughs> so uh, I didn't get so much lucky on that part, but um, somehow I actually build a foundation to work on human autonomy teaming for aerospace operations to understand how we can develop the systems and create that teaming perception, sorry, perception with the human. Um, and then actually I, before I finished my PhD, I started working at Uber Advanced Technology Group, uh, which was um, Uber's self-driving uh, division. Um, so I was focusing on operations experience to understand how drivers and the, the vehicle autonomy can work for the development tests. And then it was sold to Aurora Innovations, another um, autonomous uh, tracking company. And um, I wanted to do more, not only the experience part, but more human factor side of it. So I finished my PhD and then uh, joined Locomation uh, to be a part of that team uh, and build uh, human factor. So it's where I am right now. Great. It's fantastic to hear somebody who um, has been ignited by that love of um, human factors, particularly cockpit human factors, because that's where I started as well. So um, I'd, I'd really like to hear that. Um, if I can ask, what what's brought you to HFES this year? So what, what's, been your, what's your main driver for, for attending this year? I think I like HFES as a community. We are we are crowded here right now, but we are actually a small community, and I think like it's pretty important to stay in touch uh, and learn from each other. So that's that's what I love about HFES. So since I am a master's degree student, I started joining HFES conferences, and I met with a lot of HFES professionals. Still meeting with the new uh, folks joining us and learning new things, uh, challenging different techniques and trying to understand how I can actually apply different methods or different um, data per collection perspective for, for my domain. So it doesn't have to be particularly in aerospace or, um, or tracking, but maybe medical field that I can learn something. So HFES actually brings that aspects to me and I really value that. I recommend everyone uh, to join. Um, but another part, I love actually being in person here, especially with the COVID. I wasn't able to, we were not able to do it in person. So this year I didn't have any paper, but I want to be here in person. And also this year we have uh, great sessions about surface transportation, autonomous vehicles, and human autonomy teaming in particular. So I wanted to be in person, meet with the researchers, ask questions, exchange ideas. So I think that's pretty valuable for me, and I can take that knowledge back to my team uh, at Locomation to keep improving our work. Right. So you mentioned Locomation, um, human autonomy teaming. Like, uh, can, can you just tell us a little bit about what Locomation does and what your role is there? Sure. 
So Locomation uh, were founded by um, experts from Carnegie Mellon's, um, I hope I don't say it wrong, National <laughs> Robotics Engineering Center, NREC. Um, so our co-founders actually came up with the, uh, the concept of two uh, track model for the autonomous system. And they wanted to also address some of the pain points that the tracking um, companies are having. Uh, for example, the quality of driver life, high costs, and the, the carbon emission. So they decided to actually achieve human-led or human-guided autonomous convoy model to address some of these uh, pain points. And also, um, uh, the approach itself, which uh, I'm on the same page with that approach, Achieving L4 or high level autonomous systems are not easy for the surface transportation. It's pretty challenging. So I think the first step should be human in the loop systems. So that's why actually I also decided to join Locomation and be part of this uh, effort. Um, and what I do in the, uh, at the Locomation, they hired me to work as a human factors uh, engineer, but also build the human factors team. So I'm right now working as human factors lead with two great uh, human factors engineers helping us to uh, develop this human guided system and remind the <laughs> autonomy folks that, hey, we're a human in the loop system. So be, be mindful about human, what you're asking that operator to do. We call our uh, human drivers autonom automated truck operators, ATO. And we, I often call ourselves the lawyer uh, or the protector of the human operator to make sure that we are not overloading them. Uh, we are keeping the balance between human and autonomy for the task allocation and other stuff. Right. That's, that's going to be super exciting to be growing your own team and, and things like that and actually being able to have that influence. Just to give people a bit of, I guess, context, um, what is the current state? You know, what would people recognize as the state of autonomous trucking now? Now, there are actually other companies uh, who are also working towards uh, full autonomous trucks. Uh, ours is not, so I can more speak about our current state. So we are still in the development phase. We are testing on uh, closed traffic environments like the test tracks um, at Ohio. And we are also testing on the public roads. Uh, but again, those are requires you to go through some permission uh, to be able to uh, run these tests. We still have our safety operators behind the wheel. So we we have actually both right seaters and the drivers behind in the in the cabins, as we call them, test crew to run the test in a safe. So they're just sort of like checking each other as well. Be, make sure that they're not missing anything on the, the road that they can also safely operate uh, the vehicles and also test it. So I also encourage anyone to go into our website and uh, read about volunteers uh, safety self-assessment. So it also gives uh, a picture of what we are doing right now, but we published it, I think, early summer. So we might have some updates since then. Of course, we are testing and improving constantly. But compared to other autonomous tracking um, development right now, there are also some companies still uh, testing on the uh, on the public roads and closed traffic. But again, that that will take a lot of time for for everyone uh, to fully achieve the full autonomous uh, system. So that's why we still have anyone who is actually doing this job. We still have uh, the safety driver behind the wheel. So it's it's great to hear about the autonomous trucking industry because I am so I, I for for anyone who is unaware I work in supply chain logistics kind of like the uh, the whole three uh, PL uh, third party logistics um, trying to figure out how a trucker gets the load from point A to point B to point C uh, multi load multi um, shipment multi leg shipment that type of thing and so hearing about autonomous trucking. Um, it's really interesting to me from that perspective, but I, I am really interested in terms of sort of the regulation around autonomous trucking today. What type of regulation exists around automation in general? And does it differ from sort of, you know, autonomous vehicles and autonomous trucks? Like, what does that, what does that state look like? So I think it's, um, at least as, as locomation, we are 
<coughs> excuse me, working with also NISA, rule makers, DOT. So we have a fantastic um, regulation and policy team constantly working with them to make sure that uh, whatever rulemaking or policy or regulation is coming, we can understand and comply with it. But so far, at least for locomation, we don't have any barrier, regulatory barrier because of our concept, because we say we are human in the loop, we are not actually um, taking human out of the loop. Uh, so we have fallback drivers as well. So that's why for uh, federal and state level, uh, we are meeting all of the regulatory aspects. And um, when it's ready, we, we can actually deploy it. But I think for full one, uh, full autonomous vehicle concepts, uh, there are still some challenges to um, go through. Right. Cool. So you've been working in partnership with the NTSB. Um, where is the where where are the true human factors issues involved in that? What are the what what are the elements around human factors that we need to, I guess, solve um, before everybody can be really comfortable in doing um, autonomous trucking? Sure. So um, how we work with uh, NTSB is different. Maybe we can call it partnership. Um, but we are uh, we are working with them and keeping them in the loop and appreciate their our recommendations as we are developing. Um, so actually, uh, a couple of uh, months ago, we were um, we were able to host them in our headquarters. So they came in. We actually shared our approach and we provided a garage demo for them to just walk through what systems we have, how we are developing it, and in particular, um, we and at least like from my perspective and field, I interacted with their human uh, performance uh, experts, where we actually exchange ideas around um, the human uh, workload concentrations, uh, the distraction related issues, and how we can actually monitor the drivers to make sure that um, they have another coaching system, uh, if you will, to notify them, hey, you need to keep your eyes on the road. Um, or if there are um, getting distracted a lot, uh, we should be able to tell them to give a break uh, uh, through our systems as well. So they, their input are very useful for us and valuable, and we are actually incorporating their uh, recommendations. And also they're great resources for us to understand what kind of actual issues might happen on the road since they're investigating all kinds of uh, transportation-related um, crashes and we can understand what are the things that we can keep improving or make sure that we are we actually identify and address some of the issues but in addition to that if we can provide and support and partner for them to improve the safety on roads uh, that's what we are uh, in for and what are some of the like key takeaways things that you've learned through this through working with the NTSB um, mainly um, we have been discussing around the issues driver monitoring system. It is not only the vehicle sensors, but uh, as locomation, we have been working on integrating driver facing cameras, external uh, facing cameras to understand the human uh, behavior and how that can also impact on the autonomy uh, system in the in the follower vehicle. So. Um, we shared our approach with the NTSB and um, currently they also shared their feedback to f help us to understand what might be some issues with the certain uh, technology on the DMS side, what kind of things or metrics we may need to watch out for and then the critical human errors they have been uh, seeing. And of course, the fatigue management is a big part of it. <laughs> So you mentioned obviously at the beginning you started by uh, designing cockpits. Um, how do you how do you think designing a cockpit for an autonomous truck driver compares to designing um, the cockpit for an airline pilot? Um, what, what shared HF principles do you do you have, and which one's more exciting? Okay, I I think <laughs> there are a lot of shared HF principles, which which our team is referring them a lot in our work. Um, if I need to give an example. Um, minimizing human error, uh, misuse, uh, and uh, training, uh, where as well as maximizing the human performance, as, as for example, our concept is actually adding, we're asking more things from um, a CDL driver. We need to be mindful about their cognitive load, their training, because this is not anymore uh, operating a conventional tr uh, truck. It's convoy, and in, 
partially uh, automated. So for that reason, we are working on minimizing the training, but also make sure that we are not creating some misuse cases or um, causing more errors, uh, but also making sure that we are incorporating some of the safety factors to be able to operate in nominal, off-nominal and emergency conditions on the road. So those are the shared, I think, human factors principles uh, between uh, two domains. But if I need to point some changes in between, uh, it is the complexity of the, the environment they're operating. When you are actually designing a cockpit for a, a pilot, you can actually mainly focus on adding more and more displays, more uh, controls and commands for for that pilot to be able to operate the vehicle. Um, but also, they are able to actually spend more heads down time because there are not too many actual dynamic obstacles or objects around um, around the aircraft when they're in the air. But for the surface transportation, I think the biggest challenge we are facing is they have to keep monitoring the road, not the, the things actually on the dashboard, like the instrument panel or additional, or in addition to the OEM, like the display we are integrating. We want them to sort of like minimize their eye glance time or dwell time on the dashboard uh, and make sure that they're looking for uh, for the road and the other traffic environment. So I think that's the biggest uh, changes in between when you think about the cockpit design and what kind of like systems you need to build for. for yeah, that. keeping humans in the loop is super important. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I, the last question I'd like to ask you is, can you speculate just a little bit on sort of the future of autonomous trucking? What might the industry look like in 15 years from now? Okay, this is a very tricky question. <laughs> so, I maybe not about autonomous tracking in particular, but the autonomous vehicles. Sure. So, I am still the believer of human in the loop systems. I don't think that within 15 years we will be able to say we have a fully automated vehicles on our public roads because we will still have um, mixed agents on the traffic. We will have human drivers no matter what. And I think we need to also change the traffic infrastructure to make sure that we are actually preparing um, a great or uh, more convenient traffic environment for mixed agent traffic uh, scenarios. But the most important part, I think, for the, the AV technology for the next 15 years is not only focusing on the autonomous technology itself, but also um, educating the public because earning public acceptance and trust is the key. So if they don't know how they can actually uh, drive or operate or even walk around these like AV, uh, AVs, they may be misinterpreting the, the information they're receiving from the vehicles. They might do some mistakes and it's, it's going to be um, increasing the human, human error and then it will eventually reduce the trust and also the acceptance of that technology. So I think that's the most critical part we need to focus on uh, first while we're also uh, continuing developing on that technology. Right. Um, you know, I think that's that's incredibly important is just making sure that people around the autonomous vehicle knowing that it is in fact autonomous and that it is not going to react in the same way that a human might react, yeah. right, to, to the stimuli. We talked about this type of thing on the show many times before. Barry, do you have any other uh, last minute questions here? I guess for me, it's, the, the last one I would like to go with is you talked about um, convoys and so convoy vehicles. Could you just elaborate just very quickly on what you mean by that and how you expect these um, these vehicles to, to talk together? Sure. So in, in our model, if we sort of like step back, the first the leader vehicle is uh, driven by a uh, human. And the second one, we still have human uh, operator, but that person will be off duty when we have autonomy running the system. So there will be some distance gap between uh, two trucks, but closer than the manually driven uh, convoys uh, to uh, decrease the, the carbon emission. Uh, but the system, uh, the two actual tracks will be linked to each other through a vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle or V2V uh, system. So they will be constantly sending uh, data to each other. So for example, since our model is follow the leader, the leader vehicle will send uh, the vehicle data back to the follower vehicle so that the vehicle autonomy itself will understand, oh, okay, this is what we are doing. But also that system will have 
is have um, the sensor systems to understand the traffic environment uh, around it and adjust uh, the maneuvers according to uh, the other traffic uh, obstacles and um, the objects around it. Um, so that's that's our key. But for the for the human part, if you ask it, uh, we will be sending data from the follower vehicle to create that situational awareness by displaying or providing audible alerts to make sure that the driver knows what exactly going on in the in the follower vehicle and make the correct decisions accordingly. Well, thank you so much for your time. Where can our listeners or anybody watching find out more about Locomation? Um, we have LinkedIn page. Uh, we are keeping it pretty um, up to date, and we are also updating and pu uh, publishing blog articles on our website, locomation.ai, uh, and they can also reach out to our communications team if if they have also further questions. Great. Well, Guiz, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, we are going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. We are here with Corinne Ung, uh, here to talk about some fun things today. Corinne, I want to open up just by talking um, generally. Who are you? What is your experience? What are you doing here? Um, so I am a PhD candidate at Polytechnique in Montreal. Um, and uh, I'm doing my doctorate. I'm on my third year. And I'm here because uh, I submitted a paper and it was approved. And <laughs> I have a talk scheduled for tomorrow. Yeah. That's fantastic. What... Um... What are you what what are you presenting on? What what what's your paper about? Yeah, so um, I'm studying uh, alarm floods and more specifically how human operators deal with alarm flood and find diagnosis and correct the problem. Um, and so the paper uh, that we're presenting uh, it's about a simulator that we developed to study alarm floods. So uh, the simulator that we developed. Uh, is uh, completely free and malleable, and we put it down on GitHub. So uh, it's really to encourage research um, on alarm flood management for operators because alarm floods can be a real issue. Um, even um, this morning during uh, Craig Bombant's um, uh, introductory talk, uh, he said that during one of his flight uh, in Singapore, there was like 36 alarms that popped out within like 20 seconds. And the alarm flood technical definition is 10 alarms within 10 minutes. So you can imagine like how overwhelmed operators or pilots can be when they're in an alarm flood situation. Yeah, I was going to ask, what are alarm floods? But you kind of answered that. Maybe there's a more technical definition. And then why are they potentially so dangerous? They're so dangerous because the amount of information provided to the human, to the operator or a pilot, um, 
is so much that it can be overwhelming. And instead of uh, helping the person with, uh, with the situation, can contribute to the accident or the incident. Uh, it can be overwhelming because the amount of information provided is so much within such a short amount of time that um, uh, humans have limited uh, information processing capability and we are not able to keep up with such a situation. Uh, so this has caused um, plane crashes and petrochemical uh, explosions that led to a lot of fatalities. So this is an issue that I want to address within my PhD. This is such an important topic as well because there's been uh, so many incidents where you know you just get loads and loads of alarms going off and the biggest thing that you get is them actually trying to punch the alarm buttons just to get them to shut up uh, but but also they're spending that long doing that they don't actually solve the actual issues so within the work that you're doing within your PhD what what do you what do you, have you developed to actually support operators yeah, so what we're investigating is the introduction of a machine learning based uh, support system that would guide the human during an alarm flood. So right now in most of the, the situations in real life, uh, when there's an abnormal situation that happens, a failure or problem, the only indication of a fault are alarms. Uh, so what we want to introduce is the um, is the introduction of an AI, like a co-pilot, helping out the um, the operator when there's an alarm flood. Because nowadays, uh, and in recent years, everything has been digitalized, and we have track of the information and the alarms that has happened in the past uh, with their cause. So we are able to develop like algorithms that can study historical data sets of alarm flood and know what is the root cause of the alarm flood and propose it and suggest it to the operator to provide some kind of guidance uh, in how to fix the issue. So is this AI kind of like a mentor? Does it go through and recommend things based on how they've you know, responded in the past or how does it work? Exactly. So. Um, uh, my branch is more on the testing with humans, but one of my professors, Professor uh, Monsef Shiwa, has, uh, with the, his previous student, developed an algorithm that would be that learned historical uh, data sets and uh, during alarm flood. So whenever an alarm flood happened, and uh, it's able to recognize patterns from the past situations, and then prompt a solution or a proposal to the operator. The issue is that sometimes it can be right, sometimes it can be wrong because our technology is not always there. And sometimes it could be a new situation. So the operator is back to square one where there's only alarms as indicators of a fault. So how do we expect, I guess, pilots, I'm, I'm thinking of in, because they've got very time limited um, scenarios to run through, I guess, when, when you have an alarm flood. How do you expect the AI to almost manifest? Is it going to, do you see it being, um, I don't know, some, some guidance within a checklist or a, a, a separate screen or maybe even just a voice in the ear saying, um, you need to do this. How do you see that's, it manifest? That's exactly uh, the type of questions that I'm asking uh, our team. <laughs> and that's what I'm researching uh, during uh, my PhD. Um, and it's definitely, uh, so the method of showing how the AI would prompt a solution or a situation is definitely part of the questioning that we're trying to answer. Uh, for now, the simulator called Performance that we developed, um, there's a, one of the proposals that you just said. It's a box next to the alarms that shows a suggestion of root cause that the operator can read and can follow through or read and then uh, can also be suspicious or not of the machine. Um, and then decide on what to do next. But for now, um, what I'm setting is uh, a box next to the alarms on the screen uh, that proposes the information. But there are other other ways too. It could be um, it could be just information that's audible. But in our case, we thought that starting with something visual on the screen. Um, is where to start. What does the physical manifestation of the simulator look like? Is it is it physical? Is it virtual? Uh, it's uh, it's digital. So 
the simulator performance that we developed is uh, on two computer screens. Um, and it has two different interfaces where one provides the overview of the system health and the other one where operators can have more detailed view per each unit and subunits and make controls, uh, inputs and outputs on the simulator itself. See, this is such a fascinating topic. This this is ticking so many boxes for me. <laughs> and that's why I'm I'm really keen to dig into um, into the sort of stuff you're finding out because it is just so it is that 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 cutting edge stuff, isn't it? Um, it's it's amazing. But one of the things that has surprised me um, is that you've made everything open source. Um, well, what's been the driver behind that? Because I guess. You know, we we all when we come up with new things, we're quite secretive about it, and we don't necessarily want to. But you've just shared it to the world. So, what what was your driver? Uh, my driver is that I love research, and I want to, <laughs> <laughs> and I want to uh, share everything. But also, uh, I wanted to study human performance during alarm floods, and I was myself looking for a tool to be able to like to to test different kinds of AI designs and different kind of. Uh, interfaces on how the alarms would pop out, how the AI would pop out, how uh, an alarm flood would would uh, be transmitted to the operator. And everything that I found were from big companies who develop simulators. So there are high fidelity simulators in the world, but they're so expensive, they're hard to get. And I cannot just like modify different kind of screens on my own at home. I have to go and contact them and I'm very dependent on them, on the design of my interface. So it's been so hard uh, finding a tool where I can perform research with humans and research on different designs that we decided to develop our own tool. And then I wanted to make it out free into the world for anybody who wants to investigate alarm flood management and operators diagnostic uh, capabilities. What types of things are you hoping come out of this open source uh, model, right? Like, you open the news one day. What What is the headline that you're hoping to see? Uh, the headline. <laughs> uh, hopefully the headline would be something very positive and great. <laughs> um, and that they would say that the simulator is amazing. Uh, but uh, also I would love to get feedback from people because um, in academia, especially when I'm doing my own PG, it's a very lonely work. Um, and so I only have the feedback of myself, my team, some friends who are interested, but mostly not. Um, and so it would be great to have uh, feedback from the community, people who do programming, people who are interested in alarm floods, people who have experience in, in UX, in uh, situations where uh, they are uh, exposed to alarm, even in the medical field, like um, it's been shown that uh, nurses and doctors are like desensitized to alarms from all the machines. Uh, even in that field, um, alarm flood uh, alarms are an issue. So it would be great to get feedback from the community and feedback from everyone uh, to be able to improve our prototyping environment, improve our simulator, and also maybe have joint collaboration and do research together um, and test different type of tools together that could help uh, mitigate alarm floods and improve human uh, human decision-making during those situations. So just to dive into it a bit deeper then, if you get, if you, the, your, um, as your research pro progresses and we get um, AI involvement into, into alarm floods, what do you see as the outcome of that being? Because it, I'm guessing it's not just to provide a bit of advice, but you are, are you on about thinking about active alarm management, but you only see what you need to see as opposed to getting um, well, would I would like to see, if I understood well, is what I would like to see out of this research. Um, it would be um, to f be closer towards um, helping the human manage alarm floods, whether it's an option is that there's no more alarms at all. So there's just the AI that's learned all the alarm flood situation in the past and provides a suggestion. So that would be one way. Another way is to make alarms um, not disappear, but in the background uh, where users would have to go and find the alarms, but not be in the face with the sounds and the colors and the noise that it actually is right now. 
Um, so there are many ways to investigate how uh, alarm floods can be mitigated and how it would be shown to the human and the human-computer interactions with the AI. Uh, so what we like to see is very general, but it's a step towards um, towards making it easier for the human in those abnormal situations. And I'm hoping that the tool will help with investigating different methods. Right. We already talked about some of the domains in which alarm flooding is an issue, you know, aviation, medical. What other sort of domains can um, really benefit from having a simulator like this to help out with some of that uh, alarm flooding? Uh, pretty much any field or domain that could provide an overwhelming um, amount of information to the human when it's an abnormal situation. So in those situations, the human not only has so much information provided, they also have to react really quickly to mitigate for the information. For example, a nuclear plant. A nuclear plant, if something goes wrong, you need to fix it really quickly. Or a chemical plant, you need to fix it right. really quickly. Uh, otherwise, it could lead to disastrous um, consequences, loss of life, environmental impact. Uh, loss of production. Um, and so in such situations where uh, workload is high, decision-making has to be good, and also the stress level is really high, it would be great to see uh, the AI help out um, and, uh, and, uh, and having the alarm flood um, mitigated and having the situation a bit better. Right. So... Let's just take a step back a second. In terms of being at HFES, um, what have you got out of the? I mean, you've, we've only had a day's worth of, um, of engagement so far, but what have you got out of it so far? Are you enjoying it? Uh, I am enjoying mm -hmm. it very much. Uh, I arrived late last night because my flight from Montreal was late, um, but I was here bright and shiny this morning. I really enjoyed the opening uh, speech, and then I, I went to the operations. Um, the operations uh, discussion panel, which was a bit scary because they were talking about how a, a commander could control a swarm of drone. Yeah. Um, and so it made me a bit scared of uh, invasion of drones and uh, Amazon packages everywhere. <laughs> but, um, but as of now, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. And, um, and I am... Uh, Looking forward to all the new and interesting talk to I'm going to attend to later. Is it your first time at HFES? First time presenting? It is. First time to both. Oh, man. Exciting. Exciting. <laughs> stressful. <laughs> all wrapped up in a nice little bubble. Um, so, so you mentioned that you're look, there's various bits you're looking forward to. Is there anything specifically of the next few days that you're looking forward to seeing? Is there anything there that really you, you're definitely going to be there for? Um, so I'm definitely going to be at my talk where I have to present, um, and, and, then, uh, and then there's a really interesting talk on Friday too, on simulators in aviation. Uh, so, um, I feel like it's going to be like a, a very, uh, a very interesting talk because it'll be involving technologies from the future and how humans will adapt to to uh, to situations that could involve uh, decision making in, in strange situations and all the tools available such as AR, VR simulators that could help out. And I feel like it's a bit um, similar to, to, to my PhD because we also created a simulator and we're investigating human factors uh, topics. So my turn, Barry, I forget. We're going back and forth. It is you. Okay, <laughs> so so the next question I'll ask is uh, sort of what sort of initially got you into human factors? You know, there's a lot of different pathways in which people discover, find human factors. They come from different domains. What's what's your pathway? Uh, well, I um, I did a bachelor from McGill Universities in psychology. So first, I love psychology, anything related to psychology. Um, and then uh, I worked at Bombardier for five years. I started as a human it was I, I started as a human factor specialist, but I didn't know what it was yet. But then I learned on the job, and then I fell in love with it because it's the is the intersection between psychology, um, design, and engineering. Um, and so at Bombardier, I worked on improving checklists and 
in uh, in the flight deck uh, for business jet. And um, is that where you met Philippe? It is actually. <laughs> It is. Um, and uh, we were working on a common project, so that's how we met. Oh, okay. um, but yes, and I, one of the main issues from working in a company is that uh, they have their own deadline. So you cannot always do research thoroughly to the, to the extent that you want. So that's why I decided to go back into academia and uh, in, in human factors. And be able to do as much research as I want, and then put it free into the world, which I could have never done when I worked if I worked at a company. <laughs> so, one final question from me, if I can just um, slide one in, is the um, you're doing your PhD now. You said you're enjoying yourself back in in academia. So when you finish your PhD and you've come out with um, what sounds like going to be like really cool finding, what's next on the horizon? What, what do you think you're? Where, where do you want to go next after this? The question that keeps me up at night. <laughs> um, I would like to um, either continue in academia, do a postdoc, or or try to become a, a lecturer, professor, um, share the knowledge, um, and also keep doing research. And this time, maybe with a bigger team, and encourage other students to really. Um, pursue the research that they want to do um, and share the love for research in academia. So I think this is this is what I would like to do. Another option to maintain a, a, a better uh, lifestyle is to go back and get a real job. <laughs> um, but real job. I, but uh, I think I think uh, my path would be would be to stay in academia. So we have a couple minutes left. Would you like to share any other random musings about uh, process control, alarm flooding, anything like that? Uh, definitely. So process control um, is is the way that our my simulator functions. So it is an engineering discipline that aims at maintaining a certain output within a certain range. So it's automated. And it's used for in most of the manufacturing and production fields to like create paper, oil refineries, uh, making like tools, uh, 3D printing. So it regulates itself as it's automated. But if something goes wrong, the human has to take over and, and fix the situation. Uh, so this is um, one discipline that, uh, that I chose to build the performance simulator on because I had the resources and I had the guidance in terms of professors and help. Um, but I'm hoping that our simulator will be able to be applied in other fields than just process control. Um, because alarm flood is not just in process control or chemical engineering, it could be in all kinds of fields. So it would be great to see the simulator being adapted to other fields too. Well, Corinne, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, where can our listeners go and find you or your project if they want to learn more about performance or some of the work that you're doing? Uh, I'm sorry? Where, where, where can people f go and find you if they want to find oh, like performance sure. or, or more about you and your work? Uh, so they can find me here at HFPS. <laughs> um, they can also uh, find me on LinkedIn. Um, also, at, if you Google Karine Ang, Polytechnic Montreal, I think you will find me too. Um, and uh, I think the most uh, quickest and easiest way would be through LinkedIn. All right. Well, Corinne, thank you so much uh, for sitting down to talk with us about performance. Uh, we'll be right back. And after the break, we're going to talk to Paul Salmon about automation, AGI risks, uh, as well as safer cycling. I am sitting here with Paul Salmon. Welcome to the show. Hey, Nick. How are you doing? Hey, I'm good. How are you? How's the conference going? Yeah, very good. Yeah, the conference is good so far. Lots of uh, interesting stuff. I'm a little bit jet lagged, but yeah, hanging on in there. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad you're here. Can you just let the audience know a little bit more about you, who you are, what you've been up to, uh, some of your background? Yeah, sure. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a professor of human factors and the director of the Center for Human Factors and Sociotechnical Systems at the University of the Sunshine Coast in Australia. Um, so I've been basically involved in applied human factors research for just over 20 years now, which always scares me because I, I don't realize I'm that old, but I am that old. Um, and basically applying, you know, HFE theory and methods to understand and respond to complex problems in a, in a whole variety of domains. And so, you know, we have about between 20 and 25 people in the center at the University of the Sunshine Coast. We've got a, a wide range of projects. So we're just basically 
having fun with human factors, essentially. Isn't that what we all do? Just have, have fun with human factors. Great to have you here, Paul. Um, firstly, I think, as I've said, said this to you before, you have the coolest sounding university ever. Um, the fact that you say you, University of Sunshine Coast, I think is absolutely brilliant. But you, you talked to me nearly a year ago, actually, on, on, on my podcast, 1202, around the work you were um, looking at, particularly at risk and um, AGI or artificial general intelligence. Can you just give us, a, I guess, a, a, an update, really, on what you've been doing over the past 12 months? Yeah, sure. On, on that project in particular, um, so the idea with that project is, you know, there's, there's some significant concern about the risks that an artificial general intelligence poses when it actually arrives. Of course, they're not here yet. Um, so we've got a project where we're basically we're throwing the human factors uh, book at it, really. So we're we're applying a whole range of systems, HFE methods in particular, to basically build some prospective models of an AGI of two AGI systems, actually, and then try and work out what risks actually need to be managed um, when those systems arrive. With the idea that we can start to develop those risk controls now. Um, so we've been basically spent the year modeling. So we've uh, we've got two AGI systems. One is uh, the Executor, which is a an unmanned, uncrewed combat aerial vehicle system, um, AGI based, of course. And then the other is Milton, which is a road transport system management system. Um, sorry, road transport system AGI. Um, and so what what we've been doing is initially building uh, work domain analysis models of the two AGI systems. Um, and from that, we've developed um, EAST or event analysis of systemic teamwork models, which show basically task social information networks um, and also stamp models look, showing the control structures that are required for such technologies. And what we've basically been doing most recently is then using those models to basically identify where risks are going to emerge in both of those systems. So it's quite an interesting process because it's really stress testing, stress testing systems HFE methods, you know, can we use these methods to identify risk in a system that doesn't even exist yet? Uh, so it's interesting stuff. I, I want to back up and just talk about AGI, that term, there's three letters. What is that? And what does it mean for sort of the layman? Yeah, yeah, good question. Um, so what, what we have with AI systems currently, where, you know, things like Siri and uh, Tesla's driverless vehicles and things like that, that's kind of um, artificial narrow intelligence, so ANI, and that's artificial intelligence that has basically been designed to perform one task alone. So, you know, Tesla can drive a car, but it couldn't then go and play chess or cook your dinner and so on. So that's narrow uh, AI. And basically artificial general intelligence is the next generation of AI that will basically have human, you know, capability. It would be basically equivalent to humans. And the idea is that it will rapidly be able to self-improve and actually perform tasks that it wasn't designed to. Um, and so once those systems arrive, there's this idea that you will then quickly get um, super intelligence, so ASI, which is basically where the AGI is rapidly self-improving and, and learning and basically becoming far more capable than human beings, essentially. And so that's interesting because those systems, you know, you might design... Um, an AGI system to manage a road transport system, but then it will quickly be able to do other things as well. That the way that you're <laughs> sort of describing some of that is is fascinating, fascinating yet equally terrifying. Um, the two models you've created are, are two diverse models: one for um, combat air and one for for transport system. Um, and presumably, you've chosen two different models to work from um, to give you different views. But what are the have you found any similarities between the two models that that you've sort of been able to generalize out of? It's really interesting. The the, the interesting thing about it is um, they're very very different in terms of the risks that we're identifying. And at the start of the project, I think we included the defense force AGI system because we thought, well, they're the scary risks. You know, they're the things where. You know, an AGI system, if it's uncontrolled, could actually be, you know, killing people and, and things like that. Um, but actually, the risks are more interesting in the transport system AGI because, you know, you have all sorts of ethical concerns there around. So, for example, it's called Milton, and the idea is it changes into Marvin the Monster. Um, <laughs> and um, 
what you have there is basically an AGI that's been designed to balance and achieve lots of different goals for the road transport system. So one is obviously road safety, but also it's been given the task to reduce emissions, um, reduce travel time, generate economic growth. And so it becomes interesting there because when the AGI tries to balance those goals, um, there's some really interesting risks that emerge. And so a good example there is that it really might start being not particularly nice to people who aren't in fully autonomous vehicles because you know they are going to be a cause of road safety concerns. They're going to be driving emissions up because they're in older cars that have problems. And so you can see kind of equality issues there where the AGI might actually you know, start making them have a, a, a worse experience so that they move to a fully connected vehicle so that can achieve the goal of reducing emissions and reducing crashes and things like that. So I think the two systems are very different. The risks in the road transport system, AGI, are, are, yeah, far more interesting, unexpected, I guess, is, is the, the response there. Okay. I guess... I mean, yeah, you've highlighted, I guess, what some would almost say, I guess, are the obvious ones around the ethics and things like that, that, that are key differences between the two. Are there any differences, other differences that have come out there that have been surprising for you that, um, that perhaps you didn't anticipate before you started? Um, I, I guess the, in both systems, there's an interesting set of risks around where the AGI, you know, it might start hiding stuff from its human controllers because they start to get concerned with how advanced it's becoming. Um, and that that's really interesting in the sense that, you know, if you have a highly intelligent system that's basically thinking to itself, I can really achieve these goals better if they just let me do these other things. But the human controllers are going, oh, it's getting a bit advanced at the minute, so we're going to lock down the control on what it can actually do. And it might actually start to hide its own development. It might pretend to be you know, dumber than it even is. So some of those, some of those little interesting things are coming out, which is, yeah, quite fascinating. Yeah. So that's that's kind of one risk, right? Is is sort of obscuring what's actually going on from the operator, the human element behind it. What are some of the other risks with AGI? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, the the main risk, like uh, broadly speaking, I think what most people are concerned about is definitely not that you know, these systems become nasty, like the Terminator scenario. It's, it's more that they, if they're designed to achieve a particular goal, they'll seek to achieve that goal more efficiently and they'll seek to gather more resources to do so. So, you know, you could imagine, you know, the example is Bostrom's paperclip maximizer where there's a paperclip uh, creating AGI, which basically turns the world and then part of the galaxy into a paper ship, paperclip factory um, to, the, to the detriment of humans. So, <clears throat> yeah, there's, there's, those risks are the interesting ones where it's basically trying to optimize itself, um, and that creates risks and threats to humanity, basically. Um, the other interesting risks that we're finding, for example, in the defense system is uh, that the humans, they can't keep up with it. So, you know, for example, if in a battlefield situation, if the... Um, defense on UCAV system, it's going to be able to perceive information and understand information, you know, orders of magnitude quicker than the human counterpart. So then you have the interesting tension about, well, do you actually let it do that and continue to enact things on the battlefield or do you have to wait for the humans to catch up? And there's all, all sorts of interesting risks in that in that you could be losing combat effectiveness if you're having to wait for the humans to catch up but then if you let the agi run wild and say well we just trust it to do what it's supposed to do then it can really start doing things that maybe it shouldn't be doing just to achieve its goals so you know that that kind of mismatch in situation awareness and the fact that humans just won't be able to keep up with a super intelligent piece of technology is also really interesting to us see i was terrified before we started and now the more you talk about it, then the more I'm going down that route. Um, not helped by the fact that at the start of the week, you put a question out on Twitter um, around the AI, you know, if the AI is making the same sort of decision-making processes that we make as a human counterpart, could it be considered conscious? Um, and that sort of set my mind into sort of, um, in, into a spin, really. But why do you think that's important from a, because you, you specifically couch it in the HFE context. So why is it around, what is it around um, consciousness with, it in, with, with AI that you think is important? 
Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, and, you know, the, the inspiration for that question, I was listening to the uh, Lex Fridman podcast with, and he had uh, Kurzweil on who was basically say, talking about the huge debate about, you know, whether something is conscious or not. Uh, you know, there's people who think that a, a car is conscious already versus, you know, other things. And so there's huge debate around it, and it's a huge debate in the in the field of AGI because, you know, there's arguments that, well, we don't even understand what conscious is anyway so how can we then create it you know and so there's lots of debate but the reason i'm interested in it is because for hfe if if we have ai or agi systems that we believe to be conscious do do we then apply the same methods to understand those that we do to understand humans at the moment and you know i'm thinking things like cognitive task analysis methods uh, situation awareness assessment methods mental workload assessment methods and things like that like you know and peter hancock talks about machine psychologists that are going to be needed so as a hfe as a discipline if we start to work in systems where we have you know intelligent technologies working with humans how are we going to assess what they're doing how are we going to assess the cognition of an agi for example is that just all in code or do we do we as a discipline have to come up with new methods? Can we just apply our old methods? And some of the work we've kind of touched on in this, it basically suggests that a lot of the the types of methods that we use are going to be are going to be required. So we do need to understand, for example, what the situation awareness of an AGI is, because we need to understand, we need to work out how to kind of optimize that with with a human that's working with it. Um, but but really the types of methods are going to be important but we need to develop new methods i think is the answer you know we, we can't just take the method that we currently use to assess a human situation awareness and expect that we can assess the situation awareness of an agi and so i think there's a, a critical requirement for hfe there because my view is um our most important contribution is around ai and agi and we've kind of stuffed it up with agi not probably not through our own fault but you know if we get it wrong with agi we're, we're going to be in huge trouble so we we need to be ready with the methods that we uh, are required otherwise we're going to kind of miss the boat again probably so you say we've, we've stuffed it up with agi what can you elaborate on that a bit why do you think we stuffed it up well you know if, if you look around at the ai systems that are, that are being used in all sorts of different domains um and you know lizanne bainbridge paper, wrote a paper in 1983 basically warning of the perils of automation and you know all sorts of things you need to do to get that right and basically nobody listened and and so we have ai systems now that have, are probably out there working and they haven't had any human factors input into them and typically what we find in human factors is you know the work we do with ai we get brought in to analyze the, the catastrophes that happen after badly designed ai is, in, is brought into a system and so you know we cannot afford to do that with agi because you know if if these systems you know run away and, and and kind of create catastrophes they're going to be major ones so it's about how do we set the discipline up now to be, make sure we can make the contribution we need to okay i have something fun that i'd like to do with you uh on, the, on our main show we talk about a variety of topics and, and we let the people who listen to the show actually choose those topics for some reason ai keeps coming up um, it is something that people really, really, really want to hear about. And I'm what I'm going to do is I'm going to read off some, I guess, headlines or concepts or things that have been in the news. I want to get your thoughts on them. Just They could be one-liners. You could really dive into them if you want to. But the first one um, is sort of chatbots and chatbot design around sort of uh, AGI, right? The, these chatbots need to be fairly generalized. Uh, do you have any sort of thoughts about how... AI systems should be designed in order to sort of interact with them. Um, I, I do, I, I do have thoughts about that. I, I think the key is that they they are you know designed based on an understanding of the needs around that interaction. And what I see is that that's basically not happening. I think is my <laughs> overall comment. <laughs> okay. The ne next one: Google sentient AI. Right. That's that's the big story. That the engineer saying that their that their AI is sentient. What do you think? Um, I think it probably wasn't in that case, but I, I think we we sh we um, need to be kind of aware of these um, times when it may, might be moving towards that, basically. And, and that's uh, the thing with AGI is, you know, we always get up and 
give our presentations and say, oh, you know, Kurzweil says it's going to be 2029, experts say 2050, some say in their lifetime. But there's also an argument that we're going to kind of stumble across it. And, and we, you know, it's already on the way now to being developed. We're going to kind of stumble across it and we're not going to be ready for it. Um, so I think we do need to kind of, yeah, we need people like that who are kind of making the call that we think these systems are moving towards AGI effectively. Right. Okay. Just what about this? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Barry. Jumping on that one then. Um, as yet, I, I think we we sort of come to a um, similar conclusion uh, and from a less learned approach. Um, but we get to that point where we stumble across um, basically um, sentient AI. What's the knock-on impact of that then? Because I mean, one of the questions is that, that was posed when we when we started the show. And it could you just switch it off and pretend it never happened? And some would argue, well, some suggested that's what Google had done. Um, do you think? What do you think the um, the impact of us finding sentient AI actually is? Um, that's a good question. I mean, obviously it's huge, but I think the 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 worrying thing is that once you get to that, it quite quickly becomes you know the kind of systems we've been talking about, super intelligent, and and it's and I guess it's the fact that you know it can it can really get through reams of information. Um, in just ridiculously low amounts of time to, and to, to actually develop itself. I think I, I heard something about the the Moderna vaccine on the on the Lex Fridman podcast and that the, this AI system simulated 2 million structures in two days or something. And, wow. you know, that's just outrageously quick. And so I think once we, once we get to it, it's going to then, it's quickly going to, you know, get it more advanced as well. And we're just going to, you know, if we're not ready, we just can't keep up basically. I got two more stories to run by you. So there was a story on letting AI make ethical decisions, like the trolley problem. <laughs> do you think AI is ready to do that? Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> and, and, you know, the interesting thing there is um, the, the training data sets are they're not ethical in, the, in of themselves. Right. So the AI is definitely not ready. And, and actually, that, that's, a bigger, that's a huge challenge for human factors. That's some of the other work we're doing is in that there's a lot of high-level ethical principles are out, out there around how you design safe, usable, ethical AI, but there's really not any specific guidance about how you would actually implement those principles and how you'd actually check whether you are achieving those principles throughout a design process. And so I think a big challenge for HFE is to actually come up with those guidelines and those frameworks. And then the last story, which was an interesting one that Barry and I performed a little experiment on the side with is there's a there's ai providing companionship to people so like you know being fully in in relationships with ai this guy um had a relationship with his ai and it saved his marriage have you heard about that story and you no. have any comments on it so it's a it's an app called replica i think um and the idea is that it takes things that you feed it and feeds it back to you in ways that are sort of preferable to your um you know, to, to make you like the AI more, I guess, uh, what is your thoughts on AI as a companionship, you know, not out, even outside of, uh, romantic relationships, but like just partnership, uh, or, um, even with human AI robot teaming or, uh, friendship even. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's definitely going to be a thing. And I think, you know, again, you could kind of make some arguments that those kind of things are already happening now. They're always, I mean, we've, we're all, we all have our companion in our pocket, which is our iPhone or our, uh, you know, Android phone. And, you know, they are, you know, quite like an AI system really anyway. So I think absolutely it will happen. And I think, you know, if it's, if it's done well, it will be a benefit to humanity, I think is the key point. So, you know, hopefully people are designing those systems well. <laughs> Ethically. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But where's your um, so you, you've given us this um, this layout of, of where your research is? Where where's it going next? What's the what, what do you see sort of the next twelve months? Um, uh, yeah, so the next twelve months is we're basically um, and, and this is interesting, I guess, for HF methods. So we're going to take all of the kind of swathes of risks that we identify and, and you know do some kind of reducing down to identify the most interesting, the most critical, you know, ones. And then we're going to be developing controls, uh, you know, in like a participatory, participatory design process and some guidelines around um, the design of safe and ethical and usable AI. 
Um, but then what we're doing is we're going to simulate the, 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 the impacts of those controls. So, you know, we use uh, methods like agent-based modeling and, and system dynamics. And what we can do with that is we can say, hey, look, here's the AGI system currently and, and you know, simulate its behavior over a period of time. And then we can put the controls in and say, well, you know, do the controls work or does the AGI have some clever way of getting around the controls? And so that's what we're going to be doing um, for the remainder of the project, basically, is coming up with controls and testing them, essentially. Wow. Um, yeah, my te- fear and terror levels are, are, are not getting any smaller. Um, you're not here just to talk about um, AI, though. You're, you're actually presenting another paper as well on on safer cycling. And and I've been following um, the work you've been doing around around the crit tool. I was wondering if you could just give us a brief um, overview about what, what what the work is that you're doing there and sort of what inspired it. Yeah, sure. So you know, we we do do a lot of road safety work, and one of the problems with road safety is um, their data systems, particularly for vulnerable road users. So you know, if you're a cyclist or pedestrian, for example, there are, there's really poor data on what uh what incidents are occurring and then what are the you know, contributing factors or causal factors to those incidents so about uh, about two years ago now we um we got some funding to develop a an instant reporting and learning app for cyclists basically and, and you know we've done quite a lot of work in the area of instant reporting and learning and we know how powerful that can be so we we developed one for cyclists and it's called crit and it's a free to use app and you can get it on the apple store and uh, google play and basically whenever a user has either a crash or a near miss incident they'll report the incident through the app and they'll you know give a description and drop the location and then they'll tell us what they think played a role in in causing the incident and then we get all of the user's data obviously and we analyze it and we identify trends and you know the idea is i guess that twofold really is that, that by using the app and because the app presents the information back to the cyclist so one of the aims is that cyclists start to understand some of the, the contributory factors to cyclist incidents so they can modify their behavior and become safer cyclists themselves. And then the other idea is that by getting all of the data and identifying those trends, we can then you know, provide that information to road safety authorities who can make more informed um, decisions around interventions and strategies to improve cycling safety. So one last question here. We're here. It's day one, technically, of the conference. Uh, what are you m- most looking forward to this week? Uh, the, the, ma- the main thing I'm looking forward to is catching up with uh, you know all of the, the HF people who we used to catch up with regularly, but then haven't, haven't seen for three years with uh, COVID. So that's been great to kind of catch up with people. Uh, I'm really interested in all the human AI teaming work that's on. There's quite a lot through the conference. So trying to get to all of that. Um, and then also um, the healthcare work. So healthcare is another kind of boom area for us in Australia with lots of interest in human factors. So, you know, I'm keen to see what's going on over here in healthcare and, and get an understanding of that too. Great. Well, Paul, thank you so much for being on the show. Where can our listeners find you or your work if they want to learn more? Uh, they can go to USC's website, which is www.usc.edu, and they can see our center page and, and go from there. Yeah, and thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Awesome. Well, hey, thank you so much for being on the show. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft. These are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do are safe when they do so and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners and on 1202 The Human Factors podcast they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media and on your favourite podcast directory because it's more than just common sense.